1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 16. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over to the men of war. And this was good in the sight of the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the woman sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled his spear, for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and he came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and he came before them. This is the word of the Lord. There's a question that uh, Jesus asks Peter at the end of the Gospel of John. It's a question we're all familiar with. Jesus says to Peter, after he's resurrected from the dead, he says to Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? It's a question we're all familiar with. It's a question that first, uh, that first confronted me, I can remember, uh, about 18 years ago. I was in Thailand. Uh, I, was about, I was 24 years old. I'd just graduated from college. I was doing an internship. I'd never been to Asia before. And I was uh, with the pastor uh, with whom I was working, and, I, and on his wall, there was a calendar, a Thai calendar. And on the calendar, there were depictions of different ways that a person could bow down before the king of Thailand. They were instructions for different situations that, uh, uh, that one might find themselves in if you were before the king and how you should bow down before the king of Thailand in these different situations. And I remember looking at this picture, and I was with the other pastor, and I said to him, he'd been, he'd been in Thailand for a long time, and I said to him, wow, this is so idolatrous, this person bowing down before the king. And he sort of 
looked at me and he said, he said, maybe, but I think that's because you don't know what it means to have a king. And I was a little shocked by it. And he explained, see, in America, we don't have a king. We have a president. And even though we all feel like most of us could not become president, for the most part, there's a chance that anyone could be president. We have presidents in our nation who have come from very humble places. And so they're, they're presidents for the people. And they're not kings. They're not monarchs. They don't rule over us in the same way. And we don't, we don't revere presidents in the same way that nations with kings revere their kings. They, they love their kings, or at least they're required in some way to demonstrate their love for their king, even if they don't love their kings. Um, this, uh, this question of my own understanding, or my own lack of understanding, rather, of kingship has stuck with me for these last 18 years. And, and it's as relevant today for us as we study the life of David. It's a question that even God is asking each of us this morning about King Jesus. Do you love me? Do you love me? Um, This question of loving Christ, of loving his king, comes up constantly throughout this chapter in the book of Samuel. This word love occurs multiple times throughout this chapter, more than any other place in the book of Samuel. And, and it may not hit us any harder than when we look at uh, the life of, of Saul. By human nature, we're inclined toward worship and service. But we're not inclined to worship and serve a humble and righteous king. We're inclined to worship and serve the powerful. We're inclined to serve and worship those who we most want to be like. Uh, For a select few in the world who cannot see anyone more powerful or, or lovable than themselves, they simply want to draw adoration to themselves. But as Christians, we claim to have love for a king that is much greater than ourselves. But, but what does it mean to love a king? As we look at Saul's background and his rise to kingship and his relationship with David, his fall from kingship, on the one hand, we can't spend too much uh, time on Saul because we're, we're actually studying the life of David. But on the other hand, you, you can't look at the life of David without looking at the life of Saul. To study David's success as king is to study Saul's failure. To see Christ as present in the life of David is to notice Christ's absence in the life of Saul. And if we are to see ourselves in the story, as Luke spoke about last week, I think we'll find that Saul might be our closest kin At least early on in the story, Saul might be the one who teaches us the most about how we approach, or rather our failure, to approach God in Christ as our king. We ought to be bringing Christ our everything. We owe him our very lives because, uh, as the Heidelberg uh, Catechism says, he has redeemed us, both soul and body, from all our sin, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has delivered us from all the power of the devil and thus has made us his own property. That's what the catechism says. But instead, what do we do? We resent him. We resent God as our king because he has taken too much away from us. 
Well, let me give you a brief introduction to who Saul is. You're probably familiar with the story. Earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, Israel asks for a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8 so that they can be like the other nations around them. And after some warnings about what the king will do, uh, that is mostly that he will take everything away from the people, uh, God, through the prophet Samuel, uh, tells them what the king will do, but he then gives them a king. And this king's name is Saul. And he looks like a king. Uh, he's such a huge and imposing figure that, that we, you know, I just said that Saul may be the person we could identify with most in the story, and yet he's such a huge and imposing figure that some of us think we could never identify with him. Most of us don't look like kings just by standing around. And yet Saul, just by nature of standing and being taller than everyone else around him, looked like a king. Uh, uh, there's, there's a story early on in his life that helps us to identify with him a lot more, I think. And that's when his name is chosen by Lot to become king. And he's, he's hiding among the luggage around the people. And they've, they've chosen Saul to be the king, and Saul is hiding. <laughs> I think we can, most of us can identify with that. If you were picked out of the, the crowd, and you were thrust into the spotlight, uh, maybe you feel similar to Saul. Hide me away from that horrible, uh, that horrible fate of having to stand in front of people and speak. And yet the Spirit of God rests on Saul, and he has some early success. But it doesn't take him long for for him to become presumptuous and conceited. At one point, Samuel had told him to wait to make a sacrifice until Samuel the prophet arrived. And Saul grows impatient. He makes the sacrifice for himself. And when God sends Saul to completely destroy the Amalekites, who were a people that had attacked Israel uh, early on as they were uh, coming into the promised land, Saul attacks the Amalekites, and he destroys most things, but he keeps the best things for himself. And he even makes a a pretentious sort of argument. Oh, I kept them so that we could make these sacrifices to God with these things. He even kept 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 the Amalekite king alive. Why? Presumably just so he could have another king in his service. He started to show. He started in his own role as as a king, but he has a he has a cowardly character. He he fails to show proper restraint one minute, and another minute he fails to follow through with his duty. And after it becomes clear that Saul was not the kind of king who would listen to God, God rejects him as king. He says in 1 Samuel 15, "I regret that I have made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me. He's not performed my commandments." And this is when David enters the scene. And Luke preached about the selection of David as king a couple weeks ago and David's defeat of Goliath, the Philistine, last week. And yet for all his faults and for all the ways that we rightfully uh, criticize Saul, he is alarmingly like ourselves. Who among us can say that given those circumstances, we would not have acted the same way? After all, Saul was very practical. Do we have any practical people out here? I know that those of you who are Presbyterians would probably describe yourselves as practical first and foremost. Maybe those of you who are not Presbyterians would think those Presbyterians are far too practical sometimes. 
But we would identify with Saul because he is very uh, practical. Why wait for Samuel when he could make the sacrifice himself? Why destroy all these nice things when they, they could be used? Can we really blame him for acting this way when he didn't really want to be king to begin with? And later on, when it seems clear to him that David will take the throne away from him, who among us, if we were the king, would not pursue David in the exact same way? If we saw that same power slipping from our grasp. One Old Testament uh, scholar put it this way. He says, if we are to condemn Saul for his jealous persecution of David, how much more is Yahweh to be condemned for his jealous persecution of Saul? Yahweh manipulates Saul mercilessly. He is insulted. He feels jealous. He's anxious to justify himself. It is tempting to say that this is the human face of God, but to say that is perhaps to denigrate man. Rather, we might say that here we see the dark side of God. I think this is a very simplistic reading of the Saul narrative. It demonstrates a a fairly low view of what God was doing. To be clear, I don't agree with what this Old Testament scholar said about Saul and God. But it makes some sense. Um, even if we disagree with it, when we look at the events of Saul's life, uh, if, any, if any one of us were plucked out of relative obscurity and placed in such a position of power, we would act in the same way as Saul, and we may feel like God was attacking us unjustly. So why is Saul king? If God's not just playing with his people kind of fooling them a little bit to think, oh, this is going to be your king, and no, this is not going to be your king. Well, what is he doing there if he's not just playing with his people? Well, this is what he's doing. He's given his people exactly what they asked for. Saul's, Saul's name itself even comes from the Hebrew root to ask. They asked for a king, and what did they get? They got Saul. First Samuel 8.22 says that Saul is a king for them. And in Saul, God showed them what they needed, uh, that, uh, showed them that what they needed was not the king that they asked for uh, after their own hearts, but a king after his own heart. Saul may be a king for them, but David is a king, God says, for myself. Saul is a king for them, David is a king for God. And this is the same language that the prophet Micah uses to speak of the coming Messiah in Micah chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel. And of course, this is how David enters the scene in our story. He is the king for God, a man after God's own heart. And we get to see into the story in a way that even those in the story do not. We know uh, what kind of king Saul is. But early on when he meets David, he seems to have a, a fond affection for David. After David kills Goliath, he does not want to let David go even. We read earlier in chapter 16 even that Saul loved David. But now we will see that Saul's version of love is a self-serving kind of love. It really is no love at all. 
He loves David in the same way a carpenter or a construction worker loves a good tool. Those of you that have lots of tools at home know (laughs) that if you have a good tool and it works well for you, you love it. And as soon as it breaks, if you can't fix it, you throw it in the trash because it's useless. And that's how Saul sees David. He's good as only insofar as he serves a, a purpose. But because of his version of love, he, he takes David. He takes David. God told, God told the people that Saul would take from them, that the king would take from them, and Saul takes David. Saul took him that day, it says in verse 2, and would not let him return to his father's house. He keeps him. Why? Because David is useful for him. Samuel had warned the people that the king would take from them, and this is the first thing that Saul does. He takes David. Up until this point, there's no reason uh, to think that Saul would not be as much a fan of David as everyone else is. But Saul knows something that only he and the prophet Samuel know. That he's on his way out. He's not going to be the king anymore. But up until this point, it seems like everything is still humming along, isn't it? In fact, uh, the defeat of the Philistines and the defeat of their champion Goliath, which Luke preached about last week, it would have only served to establish Saul's reign as king, even if it was David who did the killing. David, at this point and throughout the entire story, never actually seeks to displace Saul as king. To the very end of Saul's life, David seeks to protect Saul as God's anointed king. And because of his love for God, he loves Saul. All David wants is for Saul to be victorious. And so because of Saul's affection for David, because he sees him as a useful tool in his kingdom, he sets him over the men of war. And we read that this was good in the sight of all the people. And Saul's uh, servants in verse 5, everyone saw who David was. And when Saul put, them, put David in charge of the army, everyone thought, that's a great idea. He fought the king's battles. He did what the king was supposed to be doing. And, it, and, it, and because of this, it isn't long before Saul grows a little bit suspicious. And it, and it first comes uh, during that parade that we read about that happened after they returned from defeating the Philistines. It says, as they were coming home, in verse 6, When David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. I I love how this plays out. And I, I don't know if this is exactly how it went down, but this is how I picture it in my head. Imagine people celebrating a parade after a great victory. And Saul and David among, their, uh, among them, watching the parade. And they begin singing, Saul! And you can, you can hear you know, Saul kind of jumping, Saul, yeah, me. Saul has struck down his thousands. And Saul may repeat, struck down my thousands. All right, David. And Saul says, David, he struck down his ten thousands. Struck down his ten thousands. Wait, what? He... What did they say about David? I only get a thousand? And something changes in Saul's mind at that point. And he realizes what's actually happening here. There's really no reason that 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 song should have upset Saul. It was a conventional sort of way of Hebrew poetry to start with a smaller number and then go to the bigger number. It shouldn't have upset him at all. 
The fact that they mention him first shows that they are attributing the victory to Saul as well as David. But when they mention David, and he gets 10,000 to Saul's only 1,000, it upsets him, makes him jealous and angry. Now, he could have learned something here. He could have tempered his jealousy, and he might realize that his leadership would be more firmly established if he would celebrate David's a victory in the same way that everyone else celebrates him, but that's not what he does. Even though every victory that David wins is a victory for Saul, it's not enough for him that the Philistines should be defeated. Saul wants to be able to take the sole credit for their defeat. Anything less discredits his throne in his own eyes. It becomes a foreboding sign for him that the kingdom is being taken away from him as God said it would be. And that's a key principle that Saul failed to understand. The kingdom is not his. The victory is not his. And guess what? The victory is not only David's. It's God's victory. And Saul should be happy. He should be happy that the battle was won without him having to lift a finger. Because that's God's preferred way of showing his glory to his people. He comes through for them when all hope seems lost. Just like when he, when he split the Red Sea and led his, his people out of Egyptian slavery. And here there was a giant Philistine, Goliath, cursing at his people, mocking their God. And God came through in, in, in what is almost a miraculous way through a shepherd boy with a leather sling and a stone and the aim of a sniper. I don't, know if, I don't know if any of you have ever tried to throw a stone from a sling. It is not easy. Don't do it around windows. It is an incredibly hard skill to master. And that's, this is what David does. It's clear. It's clear that, da- that God is with David in the battle. It's clear that God is with him. And Saul's behavior is God's word playing out to Saul. God says to Samuel earlier in chapter 8 that the people had rejected him. They rejected God as their king. And to reject God as king is, in a certain sense, to reject him as God. Saul took David even as a passion for his own comfort and glory. But now his shiny new toy is proving to be more than he bargained for. So he's got his eye on David. He's looking at... He's looking at David with the two-fingered point. His affection has turned into contempt. And again, we can criticize Saul all we want, but this is one of the most normal ways to act. If you've ever been in a leadership role uh, and someone new comes along, especially if they're a lot younger than you are, as soon as they disrupt the status quo, the old guard wants to oust them. It happens in businesses, it happens in families, and it happens in churches. And here it happened to Saul. But David was not just a handy tool to have in the battle. You see, David is a jack of many trades. He's a skilled musician. And the Spirit of God has already departed from Saul. Apparently I turned on a timer at some point, sorry about that. The Spirit of God had uh, already departed from Saul and rested on David. 
And when Saul was tormented by the harmful spirit from God, he could be soothed by David's playing. It's like many of us are soothed by music. This is the kind of music that David played for Saul. And, and it was first talked about in chapter 16, but it's brought up here again. We don't really know what Saul was raving about, except that this spirit from God seemed to be driving him somewhat mad. And he sees David now not as the cause of his comfort, but as the cause of all his grief. The very thing that should, brought him, should have brought him comfort is now bringing him contempt. So he attacks David by flinging a spear at him, something only a king can get away with. Just murder in his room and no consequences. But David evades him. His aim was not nearly as good as David's aim, was it? Two times David escaped the hurl of the spear. And in verse 12, we learn that the real motivation uh, for Saul's actions was not just because he had contempt for David, because everyone seemed to love David, but his contempt had led him to fear. His contempt had turned him to fear. He feared David because the Lord was with him, but the Lord had departed from Saul. Now this plays out in the world today as well. Why are Christians oppressed in countries where the state demands worship and servitude of its citizens? It's because the Christians won't worship the state. And if they will not worship the the state, then they, they are a threat to the existence of the state. It's the same argument that the Pharisees brought to the Romans when they wanted to kill Jesus. He's threatening Caesar's throne. It still exists in the world today. So what was Saul to do? If he could not kill David, he had to send him away. So he sends him out into battle. And we'll find uh, later on that what Saul had hoped for by sending David out into battle was just that he would be killed in the battle. He would be killed in the battle. But nothing could stop David's rise. Nothing could stop David's rise if God had put his spirit on David and he was God's chosen king. And Saul begins to realize that. If, If he keeps David close to him, then he's driven mad by his presence. And even Saul's servants come to love David. If he sends him away, then the people see David's victory in the battle. And it gets even worse. David was on the rise because the Spirit of God was upon him. And Saul knew he couldn't stop it. And it terrified him. And that's what brings us to the final point. And it's here that I want to return back to the beginning of the chapter. You might have noticed I skipped over a few verses at the beginning of the chapter. What we need to recognize in all of this is that it's God's intention that we love those on whom his spirit rests. In 1 Samuel, this is David. It's most evident in the first few verses. Uh, Luke's going to unpack this a little bit more next week, but but I want to close with it here. What's the difference between Saul's response to David and Jonathan's response to David? They couldn't be more different. Saul is, Saul is holding on to his kingship and his autonomy and his authority as tightly as he can. The more tightly he holds on to it, the more he sees it slip away. But Jonathan is different. Jonathan is the rightful heir to Saul's throne. But he looks at God's anointed. He looks at David And he says, that's the guy. He's the true king. 
and I'm going to serve him. We read that his soul was knit to David's. It says it was knit to David's soul. I live in a house where I, I'm, I'm around knitting literally every day. If you, if you guys know my wife, you know that I can't escape knitting. When things are knit together, they become part of the same fabric when two things are knit together. And that is why it says that Jonathan loved David as his own soul, as his own soul. So Jonathan took his own robe, his own armor, those things that would mark him as the future king. And what does he do? He gives them to David. Jonathan was a successful warrior as David was a successful warrior. Jonathan could have been a man of great renown. But he gave it up because he recognized who was God's true king. And Jonathan is a picture of submission that we have to take note of. Luke mentioned last week that we often want to see ourselves in the story. But we often see ourselves in the wrong places. We want to see ourselves as David slaying the giant. Instead of those for whom David won the victory. I would say in this story, you could see yourself in two places. You could see yourself as Saul or as Jonathan. Saul will give glory to no one else. But Jonathan brings glory to God's anointed king. And if you are a self-made person, and you don't need to find power outside of anything but yourself, then you might also be jealous if other people don't recognize your greatness. And we see this in our children, don't we? Even at our early age. Have you ever been around children and complimented something that one child does and the other kids kind of pipe up and say, well, what about me? If you've ever been around adults who do this, it's very awkward. <laughs> but if you're a self-made person and you always want to be recognized, and you don't feel like you need a savior. And that may be here, that, that may be you here today, even. You hear it in, in so much good, what we would call good leadership training. That you don't need a savior. Jesus is just a cop out because you don't have the willpower to improve on your own. Jesus is the excuse that you use to remain a weak person. That's not the truth. Saul's rejection of David was not a rejection of weakness per se. It was a rejection of salvation by grace alone. That's what we have to understand about Saul. He threw physical spears at David to try and kill him because David represented, that is, David was a picture of where Saul was headed. When the spirit rested on, Saul, on David, he needed to kill that because he knew that he was headed for the grave. And there's only one way to get rid of it. He was rejecting salvation by grace. And that is the same that is true for us today. Brothers and sisters, if we don't have the spirit of God, we're headed for the grave. That's what the Bible says. That if you don't love the one on whom God's spirit rests, you have no hope. All that you have will be taken from you. 
And this is what we see in Saul's life. David was a picture of Christ. Jonathan was an example for us of what it means to love Jesus and to submit to him as Lord. That is, you give up all your authority, you give up all your power, all your renown, you give up your self-made personality, and you say, I'm with him. He's the king. He's the one who rescued me from my enemies. He's the one who soothes my soul. Amen? That is what we get when we get Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. You get the one who soothes your soul with his gentleness, but also defeats all of your enemies. Let's pray.